This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. We've got a full house this week, including sports writers Jessica Luther, Shireen Ahmed, Lindsey Gibbs, Brenda Elsie, and I'm Julie DeCaro. This week, we're focusing on the NFL, where domestic violence investigations continue to be terrible. CTE is back at the forefront of the discussion, and Colin Kaepernick still can't get a job. Plus, Brenda and Shireen interview sports writer Ann Odong about the Women's Euro Soccer Tournament. And of course, we'll have our burn pile and badass women of the week. So let's jump right into topic one. The NFL continues to be garbage on social issues. This week, Deadspin's Diana Moskovitz posted a piece detailing the way that the NFL is trying to investigate the allegations against Ezekiel Elliott. The criminal investigation in this case was finished up back in September of 2016. The NFL is still emailing back and forth with the prosecutor's office trying to get copies of their interviews with the alleged victim in this case. And rumors have been floating around out there for a while that Ezekiel will get a one or two game suspension based on domestic violence allegations made by his ex-girlfriend. You guys, my question in all this is whatever happened to that six game baseline suspension? I mean, I understand that, you know, maybe they can't prove that this is what happened in the criminal case they decided not to move forward with. But Whatever happened to, you know, if we find that something happened, the baseline is going to be six games. I can't remember the last time someone got six games. I don't think anyone has, right? I don't think anyone has either. Nope. Yeah. So it, it, it's not a real thing. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, you know, you can have, you know this better than anyone, Julie, right? Like, you can have a law, but it's how it's practiced that really matters, right? And so they made a rule, and they don't seem to care much about it, which I guess isn't really a surprise. Well, Diana was on my radio show yesterday, and she said that Roger Goodell has not even met with Ezekiel Elliott yet, which to me just blows my mind. But one of the other things that was in that piece that I thought was sort of shocking, and I totally missed this when it was first reported, but Jane McManus, when she was at ESPN, reported that Jerry Jones was seen yelling at Lisa Friel on the sidelines last year and telling her that, quote, your bread and butter is going to get us both thrown out on the street. So basically, you have an NFL employee who they put in charge of investigating domestic violence allegations against players, and she's being harassed and screamed at by an owner because she's investigating one of his players. It's absolutely just ridiculous. I mean, like we've said, you haven't seen any player get an actual six-game suspension, including Josh Brown, the kicker from last year, who had as clear-cut a case of domestic violence as you're going to have. And, I mean, what we're just seeing over and over again is that 
this is they're trying to pretend like they care about this for PR reasons only. But at the end of the day, they want their best players on the game. They think women are lying and conniving and that the men are just victims of these women trying to get their few seconds of fame or whatever it is they think they they want. You see this in league after league. And it's just it's infuriating. I mean, Ezekiel Elliott has not tried to lay low since this whole thing. He's not taking any of this seriously. I mean, he, he literally like lifted. He exposed a woman's breast at a parade. And like, I mean, earlier this year, like this is this guy. He's he's like involved in bar fights. I mean, he is you know, I mean, he's all over the place. Nobody is taking this seriously. Jerry Jones is going on and on. I saw a quote from him this week that said, literally just said, there is no domestic violence here. Like he can know that. (laughs) After he after he signed Greg Hardy. Right. Oh, yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's right. (laughs) Well, it just sort of goes back to my point is that, you know, I said I've been saying this over and over for more than a year that the people in this league who really need training in violence against women are the owners. Because after the comments that George Hallis made about how you know rape victims are inherently unreliable because they're biased, the way the Bears investigated Ray McDonald, this stuff, the stuff with Greg Hardy, it's the owner that are the ones that really need to be educated and care. And I don't know how you teach someone to care. Yeah, amen. <laughs> oh, well, moving on to topic number two, Colin Kaepernick still can't get a job, but he's not being blackballed. Don't use the word blackballed. Shireen, you want to tell us about that? I do. Thanks, Julie. Just um, we all know and love Colin Kaepernick. Well, here at Burn It All Down, we do. Um, and just this was really interesting. Uh, Jamel Hill actually tweeted this out because the Ravens have hired signed David Olson. And so her tweet, which I'm going to quote, says, oh, and in case you missed it, David, uh, the Ravens signed a dude who quit football to be a realtor and played two games in college over Super Bowl QB. So now we're looking at just this summer, 20 two quarterbacks have been signed above him and there's this constant narrative in the media about him not being good enough or his diet's bad or he's not interested and I think that's really that's really really problematic one of the things that are super problematic here um our friend a friend of the show Dave Zyron wrote in, on June 8th, he wrote that it's a farcical parade, quote unquote, and the reasons why that are being propagated in the media about this. Um, he definitely, definitely wants to play. And then that piece that Dave wrote, he wrote that Cap simply wants a camp invite. He's training six days a week. He's in the best shape of his life. And I wanted to reference a discussion we had on Burn It All Down in episode nine. And Lindsay said something that still makes me giggle. She, you know, is an admitted uh, Panthers fan. And she said that there are so many bad quarterbacks in the NFL right now. (laughs) So it's like not like this justification that even if Colin Kaepernick wasn't the best shape of his life, which we know he is, it still wouldn't be a reason not to sign him because there's so many bad ones anyway. Uh, My team's backup quarterback is Mark Sanchez. I just want to throw that out there. Oh, God. (laughs) But fumble. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry, Shireen, go ahead. Yeah, no, just so I was going to throw it back to all y'all, like what you think in terms of that. I mean, obviously we know that he's, it's sort of like this narrative that's trying to be, you know, set up that oh he's this toxic figure and he's really not and he's been defended by his former coach and the GM of the 49ers came out to, to to defend him and sort of say you know he doesn't bring that stuff into the locker room whatnot he's focused on his play it's just really what he's done by anthem protest in, in a very silent way has offended so much of 
the NFL for whatever reason and the powers that be that they're unwilling to touch him. And I, I mean, to be honest with you, and I said this also in the conversation Jess and Lindsay and I had, was that he's the only reason I'm paying attention to the NFL right now. So there could be a, a way to draw people in by this. So I don't know. And, and that being said, I just wanted to throw in that I'm a, now a very new CFL fan. The Canadian Football League, we have our own. I just wanted to add that in because I went to my first game and it was really fun. So, um, yeah, but if it's not for Cap, I don't know how interested I'm going to be in football. So do you think there's a way to actually draw people in? Like, do you think he's getting the NFL and are, is, are getting new fans from him, too? That's a possibility. I think that definitely that you're definitely seeing um, some people who really care about social justice, which is a large swath of Americans are really caring about it. My um, I don't know if advice or plea is right. I don't like to do things like that as a journalist. But if you are a Kaepernick fan who wants to make a um, encourage your team to sign it call the offices, speak up, because there was a report this week that the Ravens were getting a lot, a lot of calls from people who didn't want them to sign Kaepernick. So oh. the the other side is speaking up. So if you want your team to sign this quarterback, you need to let them know that, you know, I mean, we can't sit here and, you know, don't just complain on the internet. Don't just complain to your friends. I mean, I love complaining to my friends. I'm complaining to the internet. Don't get me wrong. But you do need to call the teams, like let them know that there is this support out there. Do you think it matters, though? Like, I just can't. I don't. Do you believe them? <laughs> that, no. Like they're getting all these calls and stuff. Like this no. is the thing. What are these no. teams getting? Like, what did the Ravens get this week by doing this song and dance around? Like, we're gonna, we're looking at Kaepernick. Oh no, just kidding. We're literally gonna hire a guy who doesn't play football anymore instead of this guy, <laughs> and we're gonna blame it on people calling the office. Like. I don't understand. I just, I just fucking hate this whole thing. Like, it just makes me so mad that we're having the same conversation again with a new team who's doing the same stuff. And I just don't, I mean, I, to your point, Lindsay, like, people should certainly call if they want to. I just don't know if any of that matters. Like, I don't believe them that the, that there were really calls no look i mean the reason that teams won't sign colin kaepernick is a they're all blackballing him together and b they're afraid that employ that uh, advertisers are gonna get calls from people and that advertisers are gonna pull out and it's all about the money so i had someone say to me this week on twitter and i wish i could remember who it is he said this is the next thing that i expect to happen like report colin kaepernick or coach of x team praises colin kaepernick you know, next day, Colin Kaepernick works out for X team. Next day, X team decides to sign German Shepherd as quarterback. Is that exactly <laughs> what it's like? It's so it's so ridiculous. It's so insane. It, at this point, if you still believe that you know that Colin Kaepernick is not getting signed because of his play, it's ridiculous. I mean, half the team say, you know, he's not good enough, and the other half say, well, he's a starter. And so we, we couldn't sign him as a backup because he's too good. So he exists in some amorphous plane in between starter and backup that enables him not to be able to play for any team, yet my team has Mark Sanchez as a backup quarterback. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and this week we saw one of the kind of most extreme examples of this ridiculousness came out when the day after it came out that the Ravens might sign Kaepernick, you had this survey come out written written up by uh, Darren Rovell on ESPN. And, uh, you know, the title of it was about how people were turning out 
because of the national anthem protest by Colin Kaepernick that 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 the large that that was the biggest reason why viewers were turning out. Um, now, this was ridiculous. I'm going to go through a little bit of my article. I don't think progress that also cites a Deadspin article. Um, so the ESPN article was written in a way to make fans believe that make readers believe that the fans are leaving in droves turned off by these national anthem protests. But in fact, J.D. Power asked 9,200 fans whether they'd watched fewer NFL games in 2016. Only 12 percent of those fans said that they had decreased their NFL watching and 26 of the 12 percent, which is 287 people out of 9200, cited the anthem protest as the reason why. Comparatively, 27 percent of the people surveyed, 2,484, said they watched more football than they had in previous seasons. So that offsets any of the losses right there. So this survey was was crap and it was written in a very uncritical way that was made to sensationalize this fact that Colin Kaepernick is bad for the NFL. And that is infuriating. It's a farcical parade. That's what it is. <laughs> and then we also have this week, in more of the NFL's terrible news, we also had the Lucky Whitehead thing oh. that was like an absolute disaster. Jessica, I know you were talking about that. Yeah, so it's kind of unbelievable, the Lucky Whitehead thing. Like, I remember when it broke and I had to reread it like six times to figure it out. <laughs> so Lucky Whitehead was a third-year wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys who we've already talked about, and until he was cut this past Monday by the team in the midst of this weird series of events. So Whitehead missed a court appearance related to, shop, to a shoplifting charge, and a warrant was put out for his arrest on Monday. Whitehead maintained that it wasn't him, and law enforcement had the wrong guy, but the Cowboys cut him anyway. And then head coach Jason Garrett said it was necessary to cut him because, I shit you not, quote, we have built this team with great character guys. (laughs) 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 So it turns out Whitehead was telling the truth. So I'm going to pull from Lindsay's piece about this at Think Progress. Quote, the man who was arrested for shoplifting in Woodbridge, Virginia, provided Whitehead's name and social security number, which that's insane, to officers. And while he didn't have identification, he reportedly looked similar enough to the photo that cops had on file of Whitehead that they didn't question it. And then Lindsay says in parentheses, in other words, he was a black man. Okay, so by the time the police figured this out on Tuesday that they had the wrong guy, Whitehead no longer had a job with the Cowboys because he was apparently hurting the stellar character reputation of Greg Hardy's <laughs> former team. And Ezekiel I mean, Elliott's team. And, yeah. So given the team's hemming and hawing over the reported behavior of other players, this move to make this about Whitehead's off-field character or the reputi- reputation of the team is... Bullshit. Uh, This is one of those moments where I wish these grown-ass men would grow a backbone and just tell us the truth, which is probably that Whitehead isn't a good enough player for them to worry about, and that if you aren't a good enough player, you shouldn't expect your team to back you up. What do you guys think? What what did you think when you heard about Lucky Whitehead? (laughs) The funniest thing about this was that Whitehead's agent said, well, I guess, you know, the young man probably learned some lessons here after this whole thing was over, and I was like, what lesson do you learn from being (laughs) like falsely accused and then cut by your team, and then later people are just like, oh, sorry. Like, what's the lesson in that? 
no idea. There's no lesson. So so Whitehead <laughs> did get signed by the Jets, so he's on the Jets um, All right. practice squad now, or you know, um, training camp. And but the, in this New York Post article I'm reading, um, he says it was very confusing. Uh, he told reporters <laughs> following Jets training camp Saturday, "I came off the field and found out I had an arrest warrant I didn't know about, and then I was released." <laughs> so it was just like, you know, I mean, the thing that gets me about this is it was disproved so quickly, right? The the Cowboys reacted so quickly to this uh, arrest warrant when they don't react quickly to anything, right? This was disproved the following day. I mean, within hours, they could have gotten the proof from his agent that he wasn't actually in Virginia where this whole thing took place. So it's just, you know, there's got to be a balance between you know, enabling all this horrible off the field behavior versus, you know, reacting rashly and causing people their livelihood. Like we've got to be able to find a middle ground here, you guys. It should not be rocket science. And like circling back to where we started with Diana Moskovitz's piece about Ezekiel Elliott, like they're shaking down prosecutors for months on end to try to get a little bit more information about Elliott. But then on the flip side of this, they let Whitehead go with like immediately without any... (laughs) consultation and then tell us that the reason is because of all the great character that they have on the team like it's just it like it i don't know i flames on the side of my face from like the obvious hypocrisy <laughs> here it flames? just it, flames oh it kills me i don't know i don't have anything brilliant to say about this it's just so blatant like what do you say to this it's bullshit the Cowboys are that's just the that's worst. all you can say like they're the great worst character. i agree character <laughs> their character is a dumpster fire yeah, it's, like, it's a disaster. I love you, Brenda. The the whole thing is that Jessica, you just said you had to read the six times. I think Whitehead had to read it six times because he didn't even understand what the hell was happening. And he said that like this is this is terrible. Like the whole thing is just terrible. But the bottom line is we don't care at all about domestic violence or concussions. But shoplifting is a moral you know, conundrum. So it is, it's just like Jessica said, it's so blatant. Yeah, I think the whole point of, you know, the first segment here is that, you know, you can, you can beat someone or you can, you know, get in bar fights, you can um, do all kinds of things in the NFL, you can certainly use drugs, you can certainly use steroids, you get suspended, but not cut. But when it comes to something like being falsely accused of a crime or doing the most passive protest you possibly can about police brutality, then you can't play in the NFL anymore. The whole thing is just insane. And speaking of insane, concussions and CTE in football were back at the forefront of the conversation this week. Lindsay, I know you talked about this as well. So Dr. Ann McKee, chief of neuropathology at the VA Boston Healthcare System and the director of the CTE Center at Boston University, has examined the brains of 202 deceased football players. And a survey of her findings was published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, before I go any farther, we should know that these are, this is a self-selected group of brains. These are people who donated their brains um, either while they were living or their family donated them after they had passed away because they suspected that the deceased football player had uh, CTE, which is just uh, to catch everyone up, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the degenerative brain disease, which has been linked to repeated subconcussive hits to the head and causes the chronic symptoms of memory loss, depression, uh, dementia, mood swings, um, 
a lot of horrible, horrible things. So anyways, so she this study that was released this week found that 87% of the 202 brains that Dr. McKee studied did have CTE, and the, the findings were particularly alarming in the NFL players. 110 of the 111 brains that Dr. McKee studied had CTE. It's a staggering number. And, um, yeah, I don't know what you guys' thoughts are on this. I mean, you, we know how bad this is. It, you know, this is about double the figures. I think last time we saw figures like this, it was close to this number, not as many brains. But it's just, it's really hard to, hard to read and hard to fathom. Yeah, and and two days later, Raven Center John Urschel retired from the NFL. He was only 26 years old. He is probably, by quite a large margin, the smartest guy to ever play in the NFL. He's a world-renowned mathematician who's invented all kinds of algorithms and stuff that I don't even understand. Um, and you know, and he didn't say it in his statement, but those who knew him said, you know, he was pretty convinced, and he's been concerned for a long time about what this is doing to his brain, and he just wasn't going to do it anymore. Yeah, there was a really interesting. New York Times article about Urschel and it was there was a story in it that he had a head-to-head collision in 2015 and that his high level of math that high level math that he does was temporarily affected by it and a fellow lineman for the Ravens that season Eugene Monroe said he spoke to Urschel after he sustained the concussion and Urschel, he said, told him he was unnerved that it had affected his ability to solve math problems. He did go out three weeks later and play again once he passed concussion protocol because he was in love with football. And uh, but, you know, this he it definitely he could see in his own life. He had instances where playing football made it harder for him to do math. Shereen? Um, Also, just, yeah, sorry, just recently, Mike Freeman um, for Bleacher Report talked about, he wrote about Michael Oher and how he had Instagrammed bottles, pill bottles, and then he deleted that. And then on July 20th, just, you know, last week or about 10 days ago, he he tweeted, the brain is a scary thing. You have to be careful with it. And just like his, and Michael Oher is famously known to everybody as a player who was, uh, represented in the movie The Blind Side and just like his his fear about it and his own he's being public about his own you know um, concern with what's happening and how you have to protect yourself and, and your brain understandably and I think when players start doing that it becomes really poignant and really really important as well like it's just reading this this article and we'll add it to the show links as well about you know choices they have to they make millions it's written and but you know they have to make choices and send some end up with so much damage that they just they, they find difficulty in, in functioning normally it's it's really scary stuff yeah I have a couple friends who played in the NFL um one says that he wakes up or routinely and doesn't know where he is um and it has and one had talked about how he could not remember how to walk downstairs and these are young guys these are young guys not I mean you know 40s not not you know guys in their 80s and I think one of the things that was so striking about the New York Times article was the way they set it up it was it was a very artistic spread and they showed you the slice of everyone's brains each of these guys brains and and involved in this study were like Dave Dewerson Kenny Stabler like all kinds of famous guys whose brains had been donated and they showed you their face their picture of them in their prime and then they showed their brain and what had happened to it and I thought that was really striking way to do it I think the issue is not that necessarily we need to all stop watching football because that's what everyone jumps to whenever you talk about this but I think that 
the issue is that we want people to go into this knowing you know, with consent, voluntarily, knowing what they can expect and knowing how to best protect themselves. So when we talk about consent and being able to protect themselves, that leads us to the topic of kids playing football and, and other sports, because there are other sports where CTE has been reported in very young people, as young as high school in the case of soccer. But the difference is, I think, that, you know, in soccer, you can decide not to take a header, but you can't do that in football. There's no way you can avoid getting hit. In the New York Times survey or New York Times piece, they even had a punter and a kicker in there who showed signs of CTE. So I had Chris Nowinski, um, who's a Harvard-educated neuroscientist, on my show earlier this week, and he talked about kids playing youth football and said, you know, there's no excuse for hitting a kid in the head 500 times. So while adults can decide whether or not they're going to put themselves at risk, a five-year-old, who how old my child was when he started playing football, can't make that decision. So Brenda, I know that you have a lot of concerns about the way parents and schools and programs that are supposed to be in charge of protecting our kids are handling this issue. Yeah, Julie, I'm sympathetic to the connections parents see with their children playing the same sports as they did or they love and feeling as though it was a place they grew and and developed and, and enjoyed. So I understand that there's that connection there. At the same time, I think, well, I used to take road trips without seatbelts as a kid. And I wouldn't turn around and tell my kids, take off those safety gadgets and man up. I mean, I just wouldn't do that anymore. So now that the research is out there, as sympathetic as I am as parents, it seems pretty convincing that it's a really bad idea. And as a teacher, I I find football contrary to our mission. I really do. We're supposed to protect our students and provide a learning environment that sharpens their minds, not dulls it. At Hofstra, where I teach, the administration canceled the football program um, in 2008, and alumni were furious furious. But the result was that we had space and budget to build a medical school. And just as a teacher, it seems really obvious to me that there's a a contradiction in terms of the educational mission of our schools and sending, sending kids out and saying, well, you know, go for it. And I know if they're of age, it's a different story, but a lot of our, our college players are 17. So they're actually not of age. So I have that I have that feeling where I, I completely understand sharing that love of a game with your kid and what that means. But I also think there's a lot of things I love that aren't good for me and I get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as a parent who's had two kids who played football, um, thank God they don't play anymore. One of the things, you know, every year the league comes out and our league was won by a Catholic school district. So, I mean, talk about, you know, supposed to be protecting kids. We had every year they came out. First, it was like heads up football. You know, we're going to teach kids to tackle with their heads up and that way they're going to avoid concussions. And the other one was this is the helmet that's going to protect your kid. It's three hundred and fifty dollars. But really, can you put a price on your kid's safety? And the thing is that neither of those protect kids from this. First of all, something protecting the outside of their brain doesn't protect the inside of their brain, which is really where all the damage happens. And you can't stop that from happening with a helmet. Right. I just wanted to agree, like, this is really ridiculous. There are no federal guidelines for high school football or below. So whereas the NFL has, like, reduced full contact practice to once a week and the NCAA 
only permits two such practices a week, there are no, I will repeat myself, there are no corresponding federal guidelines for high school football or below. And at the lower levels, this is where you don't have all these trainers on the side. You don't have people who are educated. You don't have people who know what to look out for uh, when it comes to, you know, you don't have the, the facilities. I mean, the NFL does so poorly with this, with all of these resources. Think about the people who are doing it at the lower levels with kid brains, which are so much more fragile than adult brains, and without any federal guidelines to go on. It's terrifying. Well, you know, the thing is, we do have trainers on the sideline at this level. That's one of the things that they've you know, this has become a big deal lately. But the issue is they're looking for concussions. And the kids who get concussions get pulled out and their brains get time to heal. But the kids who are just getting hit in the head over and over and over again with those subconcussive blows, those are the ones that wind up with problems. And if we want to tie all this back to how horrible the NFL is, which is always good, Do uh, it. This, this week the uh, ESPN's Outside the Lines reported that the NFL has is ending its research partnership with the National Institute of Health, which they announced in 2012 that they were giving $30 million to the National Institute of of Health, no strings attached for concussion research. And this is research that would help not only NFL players, but down to the lowest levels of the sport. Because there's one thing that people... We need more research, right? We need more science. We need the science to catch up with public awareness at this point. Um, well, guess what? <laughs> that money was not no strings attached. And in August, that partnership is going to end without them giving $16 million of the $30 million funds to the National Institute Institute of Health. Because they had so many strings attached to that money that the NIH is just letting this expire because they their the the NFL's money is so tainted and the NFL was so horrible to work with on this study. So thanks, NFL. More of that excellent character shining through. <laughs> Dumpster fire. Well, speaking of character and excellent character, the women's Euro soccer tournament's going on right now, or football tournament, for those of you who practice a more pure version of the sport. Shireen and Brenda interviewed sports writer Ann Odong about the tournament. Do you guys want to tell us about that? We were really excited to interview Ann Odong. She's the women's soccer Yoda from Australia. And after the group stages of the Euros, it's it's been wide open. That's the national tournament that UEFA sponsors that's been expanded to 16 teams this year and getting the highest ratings in its history. We are so excited at Burn It All Down to have the incomparable Anne Odong with us today from Sydney, Australia, to talk Euros, women football, and so much more. Anne is the editor of The Women's Game. She's an expert on women's soccer, namely the Matildas, Arsenal, and Perth Glory Football Club. She's one of my t- favorite Twitter followers and a fellow Japan national women's team lover. Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Brenda, do you want to get us started with our conversation? I know that you've been really excited to talk about the Euros. I am really excited. The Euros, which I've dubbed the frenemy tournament. It's been really exciting in the group stages, but now we're at the quarterfinals. So I wanted to ask Anne about a few of the storylines that have come out of the initial round of play. I mean, for one thing... I guess I'd like to ask about Spain 
it seems really strange to me that they left off Veronica Boquete, the captain and leading all-time goal scorer for, for Spain. Do you have any thoughts about them or about those choices? Yeah, look, that was actually the probably the shock um, leading into the tournament of players who were missing that were not injured. Boquete has been such a large part of the Spanish national team for a while and not just on the pitch but also off the pitch. She was one of those players that I guess led the revolt in terms of the Spanish women's national team getting more attention, getting more resources from their federation. And there was a bit of a hint of that this might be the way to be able to get rid of a player who has actually um, done so much um, to make the federation accountable. I think her loss now is is much more evident on the park where she had immense leadership. She had um, immense um, control of the uh, playing group and of the game. And it feels like Spain are bereft of that during this tournament so far. Yeah, I, I remember seeing her in the last Women's World Cup and she was just electrifying. So I, I was really surprised myself and wondered about questions of retribution. She's been really active in terms of trying to, you know, build the respect for women within within Spain and the Spanish Federation. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. Okay, all right. So I won't dwell too much on Spain, but I do want to also another collapse, Italy. Um, were you expecting that result from them, or were you were you kind of surprised? That I was sort of a little bit surprised. Oh, look, Italy had had issues for a little while. They're in their rebuilding um, period. They they lost one of their stalwarts in um, Trisha Panico just a couple of um, just in the last couple of years, and then um, they, they had a couple of other senior players go, and they're sort of in their rebuilding phase. But look. For them, I actually think they had a pretty decent tournament after what was a really, really lackluster first game against Russia, and they paid for that. Um, they came out, and they came out really, really soft and allowed Russia to dictate a lot of things. And in the end, when they played against Germany and they had a fantastic game, and Italy would be thinking, what if Morrow hadn't been injured just before half time when they were starting to get on top? Um, that game against Sweden, they totally um, dominated large portions of that game um, and came away the with the win. So they're definitely a victim of starting the tournament slow and, and being caught out when they were chasing points late in the game. Hmm. Okay, Shireen, you want in on this? Definitely. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to want to talk about France. I'm going to want to talk about them scraping through and keeping their head above water. And although in the last match, we didn't see Buhari do a Buhari, which is usually what happens. I have an incredible emotional attachment to her I mean, my own daughter is a goalkeeper and I don't know what it is, but I also really am rooting for them. Um, I know you and I also share an incredible love and respect for Luisa Nisib Kedemuro and she's not there anymore. So there's like this forever longing and sadness and yearning for them to do well, which just doesn't seem, they don't seem to be gelling the way we would expect. What do you think? And what are your predictions for the quarters between England? That's going to be a huge match. Look, I think France are an interesting team this tournament. Um, they came into the tournament as favourites, which they have for the last couple of tournaments, but there was real talk about them changing their mentality uh, under their new coach. And the She Believes where they defeated the USA pretty convincingly and, and really took it to Germany and came back against England. A lot of people maybe thought, okay, this France has finally toughened up mentally and knows how to 
take on um, the challenge of, you know, being being challenged by other teams and still come out on top. But really in the group stages, they struggled against Iceland and needed a last, you know, the last couple of minutes of penalty. And then against... Um, Against uh, Austria, they they ended up with a one-all draw, and again they were behind in that game and had to come back. And the same, it took a Camille Abili for a kick, which really should have been saved by Talman in goals um, to get them the draw, which kept them in the tournament. I think what you can say for France is that they're still here. I mean, in years past, maybe this France would have limped out of the tournament and and really given up when they were deep in the 76th minute and they were down and pretty much out of the tournament. But I think they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, Wendy Renard is going to be out for the quarterfinal, which is a massive loss. She's not only their captain, but she's a set-piece threat for them. Uh, and I think England will feel a lot more comfortable, particularly with Steph Horton and um, Millie Bright in the centre of the park, of being able to contain them airily. But now they have to try and regroup and, and, and try and see if they can play their best fluid football. The difference is... They're actually going to go into that game as underdogs, which is the first time in a long time that France have done that. And maybe just taking off that mental pressure will allow them to play the beautiful free-flowing football um, France. We know France can play, but you're right. They just don't need a Buhardi moment, although I love a good Buhardi moment, just as long as it doesn't cost them a goal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the squad itself, I mean, Amandine Henri, like they've got some superstars on that squad. So it's just, you're sort of like, you know, ripping out your hair watching, saying, why isn't this flowing? I mean, hopefully they'll get it together. I have, and my question is, one of the strongest foot, sorry, fullbacks in women's football is on England. Like, you, you know, like I think that Lucy Bronze is, is incredible. She is. So, and I mean, will France be able to penetrate in a way to be able to challenge them? I have been so incredibly impressed with English football, and I've never said that in my entire life. So, <laughs> I mean, ob- obviously we're speaking about... I know, but I'm speaking about the women's game, right? So it's okay. So, I mean, it's just going to be like, what do you think? What do you think might happen there? Like the clash of France versus England. Look, I think um, England go in as probably the best defensive side in the tournament. Um, As we saw against Spain, they had only 26%, sorry, 24% possession. Um, And in terms of um, how they were able to how they were able to just defensively reorganize themselves really, really well when they needed to. I think that's that's going to be a problem for France to be able to break them down. The way France are going to have to approach it, I think they're going to have to go with pace, really, really test um, England's ability to um, to play and defend the counterattack, which Spain didn't really allow them to do. Um I think that's where France is going to look to attack them. And if they can do that, it means then that Lucy Bronze, who is one of the world's best fullbacks, she'll probably stay at goal home. Um, she'll have to stay at home because she's going to have to defend the flanks with the likes of um, Eugenie Le Sommer, um, Elodie Thomas, um, Marie-Laure uh, Deli, all of those players attacking those flanks. And hopefully that will give um, France the opportunity to, to um, do what he will do what they do best, which is be able to then switch it to the center of the park. 
I like England. I think they've got a really good solid team. They've got a good solid midfield and they'd like to play that counter-attacking football and Jodie Taylor's been very, very good. I think the other person who probably hasn't got as, uh, enough plaudits has been Ellen White. She's been fantastic in linking up alongside Taylor and I think that's um, where I see the game being won in the middle of the park and either team then being able to, um, uh, ex- um, what's the word, let loose their forwards and, and do the job. But I think defensively, England are definitely more solid and I think that's where they're going to look to um, start their game and see if France can can break them down. Um, Brenda, I know that you wanted to ask about your fave. Well, I don't know that they're my fave. Well, Steffi Jones is my fave in this, in this tournament. I mean, I loved her as a player. I'm really excited to see her coaching Germany. So I do want to ask because it's a kind of new... A lot of new faces, different faces for Germany, um, but they've but they've looked they've looked good, if inconsistent. What do you think, Anne? Yeah, I, I think you you're right. They've looked good, but inconsistent. And I think the problem for Germany at the moment is they've had so much ball, but they're yet to still score a goal in open play. They've had three penalties, and they scored off a set piece and, and a goalkeeping blunder. At that, so for them, their problem is they just haven't been able to score from open playing so far. Uh, Jennifer Marajan has been really good. I think she's dictated things. For me, I think she's played a little bit too deep. Um, I, I'd like to see her being able to link up more with the likes of Mandy Schlacker and um, uh, 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 Anya Mitag as well. Um, but I think Germany. Look, Mitag. When I spoke to her before the tournament, she said for Germany. The tournament really starts at the knockout stage. This is where they play their best football. They are a tournament side. They know how to pace themselves and be there at the business end. And considering now they're in that bottom half, which contains the likes of Sweden, uh, sorry, um, Austria and Spain, I think they'll like their chances of being able to go through to a, another final and possibly a ninth European title. Wow. I mean, I have to admit, actually, Brenda and I were discussing this before we were speaking with you, and I've just never been able to recover from the loss of Celia Sausage and Nadine Anger moving on. I mean, like, I just, I don't know, my heart gets really, I, I fall in love with these beautiful footballers and the way that they play. And I mean, I, I, I hope truly, it's just been some really incredible football actually like Scotland really wowed us it really wowed me and the passion and the perseverance with the way they played and was this not the first time Scotland had entered the Euros? It was the first time in I think almost 20 years that Scotland had been part of the Euros but this is the first time since they moved to the finals format that Scotland had been a part of it look they had a horror first start for them Um, and unfortunately they 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 slowly recovered from it, but the loss against Portugal really hurt them, even though they were able to defeat Spain for their first tournament. But in all honesty, for the tournament debuts, um, debutants, it's actually been a pretty good tournament for them. Switzerland, of course, went really, really close against um, uh, against uh, France and almost knocking France out and going through themselves. Um, then you had Austria, who finished on top of Group C, uh, who nobody would have been able to predict pre-tournament that they'd be able to do. And they had the likes of Nina Berger, who has been in excellent form for them. And then, of course, um, Belgium, who had the very, very tough Group A. But again, they went very, very close to going through and even had a win themselves. So I think what it's shown is that women's football is continuing continuing to increase its depth across nations. And much like the Women's World Cup in 2015, when they expanded to the um, 2014s, uh, if you give 
World Cup, if you give nations a chance to step up to the plate and if you give those debutants an opportunity to step up to the plate, a lot of them are showing that they can do so. So I'm hoping that in the next couple of years we're going to see a bit more expansion and a lot of these teams now starting to see the value of women's football and therefore putting more resources into their programs. Awesome. That's brilliant. Um, We want to thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell our listeners where we can find your work and your brilliant commentary? Thanks so much. Um, Yeah, we are at thewomensgame.com. We've been going for nine years and um, we cover all of Australian women's football. We also cover the Asian Confederation and we're looking forward to next year going to another Asian Cup. So thewomensgame.com is where you can find the work of myself and also my excellent and really talented team. Thank you so much again. Bren, any final words? I guess I just want to put you on the spot and ask you to pick us a winner. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Okay, so I have to go with two winners. I have to go with my heart choice and my head choice. (laughs) Um, My heart choice is, of course, France. (laughs) Because that's what I'm like. But my head choice is that Germany will will do the business. They they've got a nice side of the draw. Um, the the big teams are on the top half of the draw and look like you know they'll knock each other out. But it wouldn't surprise me um, if Germany get a ninth title. But I, I would like to see a new European champion though. Yeah, it's nice to see the crown be passed around a bit. No, it would be fabulous. And I think it also means that a lot of nations will will really feel like um, it's worth it um, doing all the work that they can do. Good point. You've managed to make Brenda and I both equally happy. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) For your heart and your head. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and burn it all down. All right. Thanks for having us, guys. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them on fire. Lindsay, do you want to start? Oh, I would love to. (laughs) Um, So we have Britt McHenry, who was laid off by ESPN recently, which I'm I'm not celebrating anyone being laid off. But now that she's been laid off, Britt McHenry, who was... A kind of a, a, she did some sideline reporting. She did some, you know, on the ground reporting at NFL games and stuff like that. Um, she is now, according to this ESPN article, having an awakening as a vocal conservative. Now, it's not that she's a conservative that is really making me put her on the burn pile, but it is this concept that she is this maverick because she has these conservative ideals in sports media and that she is painting herself as really standing up to the establishment with such ideas, such as (laughs) um, Colin Kaepernick can't get out of his own way. Any good deed he does comes at the expense of uh, bashing the United States of America. Uh, She tweeted that Kaepernick survey that I pointed out how false it was earlier this segment, uh, earlier this episode. She tweeted about that with the phrase, not shocked. And then she added some emojis. Um, And this all really started when she put out a blog on July 4th that was titled, 
or this was her tweet leading up to it. So Kaepernick can't truly celebrate America. Well, I can. He expressed his beliefs and we can express ours. And then in capital letters, blog. Um, so sorry. Uh, she just drives me crazy. It's just, you know what? Like I, you know, she's, she's made it far in her career. I'm sure she will get more employment. Um, looking through her feed, it, she seems actually pretty reasonable on a lot of issues. Um, pretty on the mo- moderate side. But it's just this this notion that in that spo- in the sports world you're this maverick if you have these conservative ideals when Kaepernick doesn't have a job. So like, you know, he's it's not like everyone is coming out and and supporting him and you're the only one who's not. And it's also this concept of just there's this uh you're not thinking of things critically. You're not thinking of things you're saying these things because you want to make people mad and that was pretty much proven in this Washington Post article when she says that she emailed her agent before this Colin Kaepernick blog and said I know this opinion is really going to ruffle media feathers. And then she told uh, the Washington Post that having all these um, reactions uh, pour in from all sides of the political spectrum was kind of addicting. So, look, she wants the attention and she's she's doing this and she's painting herself as this maverick of sports media. And I wish her all the best in her career, but I just can't I can't support this. um Maverick standing up for your beliefs cause when it's at the expense of um, true Americans. So burn pile. Burn. Burn it. All right, Shereen, you're up next. Thanks. My burn pile this week is actually um, something emanating from the Tour de France, which happened. And on Monday, there was a report in The Guardian um, written by Susie Clementson about Belgian cyclist and his name is Jake Blake Lance and sorry, Jan Blake Lance and a comment he made while on the podium after winning. And he said what he was asked when asked what he would take with him for his free moments during the tour. He said, and I quote, a packet of condoms for sure. You never know where those podium chicks have been hanging out, end quote. Ew. So it was so nasty so absolutely inappropriate unnecessary it was just so gross and i think like he he's also been in this article that was written for the guardian it talks about how he has a daughter and the fact that he says like this stuff this is the same world that his own daughter will grow up in so this like blatant misogyny in this commentary and i mean i'm sorry like i have issues yes absolutely with the sexualization of women during award ceremonies absolutely does that justify his commentary no this this has to this really has to stop and i think that we tend to forget that the issue of you know sexism in sport is really across the board and affects not just players but everybody involved every woman involved in sport at at any facet they're all recipients of this type of horrible commentary and and sexism so i'm burning that jan blake lance i'm sorry burn it okay brenda your turn Yeah, I'm ready to burn a repeat offender, the Mexican Football Federation, this week for botching the launching of the Mexican Women's Football League, which kicked off this past Saturday, July 28th. It's actually really exciting. There are 16 teams competing, and the Mexican Women's Football League, or soccer, has been trying to to really make a go at this since the 1960s and even had some seasons 
1971, 1972. So this seemed like a really exciting moment where they were going to put some resources into women's soccer in Mexico, and it was supposed to buoy the national team. But I've got to put the Mexican Football Federation on the burn pile for bungling this. First of all, they instituted a rule saying that players were not allowed on the team if they weren't Mexican nationals. Basically, the women were on planes to Mexico when they were told that they wouldn't be able to to be fielded because they were foreign players, even though Mexican-American players from the U.S. and Central Americans have lit it up for the national team, captained the national team like Monica Gonzalez, who we interviewed recently on the show. And secondly, the players' contracts supposedly discourage them from lesbian or manly behavior or getting pregnant. Damn. Which is totally against Mexican labor laws. Totally against them. Uh. Now, those labor laws are routinely violated. So I'm not saying it's not, you know, a a common place, but it's disgusting. So FMF, don't take some big, awesome step to advocate for women only to make it another machista womp womp, right? (laughs) Don't do it. So I'm still excited about this season. I really am. I'm going to be watching but I want to burn the administration of the Mexican Football Federation. Burn. Burn. Burn it. All right, I'll go next. I am throwing Adidas and LeVar Ball, metaphorically LeVar, on the burn pile. I've been defending LeVar Ball because I think a lot of what he does is just silly, um, goofy stuff that, you know, I, th- I think a lot of guys sort of act the way he does. And I, I think that the the response to him from a lot of people has been really overblown, especially when people are talking about his relationship with his children, which seems to be lovely. However, LeVar Ball was coaching at Adidas's tournament in Las Vegas this week. He's coaching his son, LaMelo, who I believe is 15. He's been a spectacle through this entire tournament. He's pulled his team off the floor. He's argued with every referee that's been there. In one of the games, the referee was a woman, and he actually had her pulled and replaced during the game because she gave him a technical. Um, Adidas had issued, before the tournament started, a directive to the refs telling them not to throw LeVar LeVar out of the game because he was a draw for everyone who came there to see him, and also because they were hoping to sign a contract with his son, Lonzo. So after the game, when this woman was 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 taken out of her role as referee and summarily ejected from the game because of LeVar, he made a bunch of comments about her being a woman, saying that, you know, I know she needs to stay in her lane, which is what he said to Christine Leahy. He also said, as a woman, she's trying to get attention. She's trying to act like a man, things like that. It is the second time that he has responded to controversy with really, really sexist statements directed at a woman who is challenging him. And whether or not you agreed with what Christine Leahy had to say, and I did not, it's really disturbing to me that he continues to say this kind of stuff. And even more disturbing that Adidas seems to care more about signing a contract with Lonzo than they do about the millions of women out there who buy Adidas. And by the way, who do they think buys all these shoes for their kids? Most of the times, (laughs) it's the moms. So I would be real careful where you tread, Adidas. I'm throwing them on the burn pile. Burn. Burn it. Burn. All right, Jessica, you're wrapping us up this week. All right. So last weekend, I wanted to watch a match in the women's Euro competition. I think it was like middle of the day Saturday. You know, you sit down, you think, okay, I knew I knew the game was on. I had checked the schedule earlier in the day. So I was confused when I brought up the guide on the television and I looked at ESPN's two channels, you know, ESPN, ESPN2, to see which channel the game was on. To my surprise, on ESPN, there was something called the basketball tournament. 
And on ESPN2, they had drone racing. I was so confused. So I went back to check the schedule again. So And it turned out that if I wanted to watch some of the best women football soccer players in the world, I needed to hook up my, my Chromecast and stream the game from a device since that was, only, that was the only way it was available. The quality was pretty low, too. I just want to complain about that. Uh, it was pretty blurry. My husband suggested that this was on ESPN's side because so many people were watching that it was coming through blurry, which, you know, huh? Funny about that. I also remarked to him that the fact that it was so blurry, you couldn't actually tell anything about the gender of the people that I was watching play soccer. Uh, and so I would today like to burn ESPN's coverage of drone racing over and above the women's Euros. Burn it. Oh, yeah. Burn. You know, it's funny, too, because ESPN actually showed cornhole slash bags, depending on what you call it. You know, the game where you throw bean bags through a hole. They had that on ESPN, too, one yep. morning instead of women's yep. soccer, which is just yep. unbelievable. <laughs> Isn't that just like a drunk game? Sorry. It is. Like cornhole. <laughs> Seriously. Like, why, don't just, just, <laughs> why don't they just call it beanbag throwing? Like, why the fancy name? We call it bags in Chicago. <laughs> is that fancy? <laughs> cornhole. <laughs> I don't think cornhole is a fancy name. <laughs> but it does make you think it might be more interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I don't know what like, you guys are doing up there in Canada, but cornhole is not fancy. <laughs> you know, I like, I happen to, I happen to love corn on the cob. So anything with food draws me in. So I think this is maybe in it. I don't know. Well, that's probably why they call it that then. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. Shireen, you've got the badassiest of them all this week. I do. I was so happy to see this. I wrote about um, team refugees during the Olympics last year, and Yusra Mardini was one of the athletes that I had mentioned in a piece that I wrote for Media Diversified in their coverage of uh, athletes of color and in, during the Olympics, and Yusra Mardini is swimming as an independent in Budapest, in Hungary, in the FINA World Championships, in the um, in the uh, two hundred uh, meter freestyle or hundred meter butterfly that she's competing in, and just it, it, she's a refugee. She's a Syrian refugee, and her story is so so incredible because she and her sister actually jumped out of the raft that they were in and swam the raft to safety. And she was, uh, it was unbelievable. I think she was 17 at the time. And it was, it was something that I've never forgotten, a story about how someone had used their athleticism to do this. And now she actually was part of Team Refugee and she went to the Olympics. She didn't medal, but she qualified after the first heat. She advanced, I mean. And um, now to see her as an independent, she trains in Germany full time, but to see her in Budapest speaking up, she's also an ambassador for the United Nations and she advocates for, uh, refugees and, and, and campaigns for them and draws attention to the issues of them and migrants that are in danger. And I think that's really important. And I was so happy to see her and hopefully we wish her all the best. Yeah, definitely a worthy badass woman of the week. 
I also have an honorable mention. This goes out to sports writer Claire Smith. Uh, she was the first woman's beat writer in the country when she covered the Yankees for the New York Times in the 80s. Um, she was she was honored by receiving the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, which is an award voted on by her peers. She was awarded the she was given the award in Cooperstown yesterday. And a lot of really important people in the industry were there. Jay Jaffe, I know, went there. There were a whole bunch of sports writers there honoring her. And she's someone who hasn't doesn't have a hasn't a, had a ton of attention. She certainly doesn't have a really high profile like some other women writers in sports. She's very soft-spoken, but she's one of those people who has just sort of survived and grown to be really respected and admired by other sports writers just by how well she does her job and how good she is at it. So I was really, really gratified to see her getting that award at Cooperstown yesterday. So Claire Smith is my choice for honorable mention this week. Jessica, I think we have one more. Yeah, we want to say congratulations to former guest of Burn It All Down, Belkis Abdul-Qadir, on winning the Leadership in Sport Award from Beyond Sport, an organization dedicated to sustainable social change through sport. Abdul-Qadir is a Muslim hooper who became an activist when the international organization that oversees basketball, FIBA, banned head coverings on, on the court. That decision was reversed in May. Abdul Qadir now teaches and coaches young girls through her organization, Muslim Girls Hoop 2. This honor is so well-deserved. Congrats, Belkis. And you know what? I actually misspoke. Shireen, I think we have one more honorable mention this week. Um, yeah, I just wanted to actually mention that uh, just as the news comes in, Simone Manuel won the 100 meter at uh, at the FINA championships that we were talking about. And I think that's, we just love her. So happy to see this happen. And she, it was an upset because Efimova was the actual um, favorite to win. So Yulia Efimova was beaten by Simone Manuel. And I think that's really important. And just how Manuel amplifies um, black women in, in swimming, which is something we don't always see. It's just was, it was awesome. And the news was all over a place. And I always love a good upset. So congratulations to Simone. Yeah, that's a great story. All right, let's move on to things we're looking forward to this week. This can be a sporting event, something you want to read, something you're currently enjoying, movie, book, whatever. Lindsay, what about you? I'm going to see live tennis. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm kind of ready to get done with this podcast, but I'm going right when I'm done. But uh, love you all. But um, yeah, the City Open is in D.C. this week. There's a men's tournament and a women's tournament. The field is phenomenal. Um, Juan Martin Del Potro is there for the men. Simona Halep is here for the women. Um, so I'm going to be there today and every day after work um, this week. And it is the it is really one of the tournaments where I got my start as kind of a sports reporter when I was blogging for free and would come down here and they would give me a press credential and let me interview players that I probably had no business interviewing. And so just so many good memories at this tournament from way before I lived here. And now it's that time of the year again. I can't wait. That sounds great. Jessica, how about you? Yeah, so this week I've I've been totally into this new book that I got called Women's Gold Medalist, Rio Olympics 2016. It was part of a Kickstarter uh, done by an Australian designer and illustrator named Wendy Fox. And it's this beautiful book that features 
an image that Fox has drawn of every single woman, all 293, who won a gold medal in Rio. And it's so great because her style is a lot of simple lines and block colors. There's no details in the face, but she's put them true to size. So you can see in comparison to each other how tall or big each woman is. She tells you their age, their height, their weight, their country, which sport they play, and for what event they won the gold. And then towards the end, there's this amazing section where she compares like the extremes. So she has the youngest, a 15-year-old diver from China, next to the oldest, a 47-year-old equestrian from Germany. On the shortest versus tallest page, it's Simone Biles, who's next to Brittany Griner, and you can really see the difference in the size. It's this really gorgeous book to look at, and it's just the neatest celebration of all the female gold medalists and their different body shapes and their sports and their accomplishments. That sounds amazing. Brenda, do you have one this week? Yeah, I'm looking forward to the U.S. versus Japan soccer uh, match in the Tournament of Nations. If you can believe it, in addition to the Euros, there's another international women's soccer tournament. (laughs) And that's this August 3rd. And Japan has a lot of new faces following some big name retirements after the last Women's World Cup. So I'm going to learn a lot. I plan on learning a lot about the Japan team right now. The The U.S. is at home, but really you can't count Japan out. It's a fabled rivalry in women's soccer, and they're playing 7 p.m. August 3rd on ESPN2. If there's not drone racing, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, Shireen. Um, in addition to the Euros that I'm so psyched about, um, and you heard that little bit of that in our conversation with Anne, right now I'm reading my friend Anna Kessel's book, Eat, Sweat, Play, How Sport is Changing Our Lives. And I'm just really excited to see more women writing about sport and sports media. So really excited about everything um, and including that book. As for me, I'm finally diving into Rejected Princesses, which is a book I've had for a while, um, where it doesn't have to do with sports in the sense of, you know, sports as, you know, this modern sport, but it's a book about women who have been rejected throughout history because some of them were bloodthirsty and many of them were extremely violent and all of them sort of threw off society's conventions about women. And this wonderful guy named Jason Porath researched the whole book and drew them as Disney princesses because he said in you know real life they would never actually be Disney princess- princesses because they're just too controversial. So he drew them all as Disney princesses and it's a really diverse book. I think it's pretty wonderful. So I'm looking forward to sitting in the sun today outside and finally diving into Rejected Princesses. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down is mixed and edited by Ellie Gordon Marshall and lives on SoundCloud, but can also be heard on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so feel free to subscribe, rate, and tell us what you like or didn't like about the show. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at BurnItDownPod and on Facebook at BurnItAllDown. You can also reach us via our website at BurnItAllDownPod.com. That's where you'll find all our show notes and links to all the topics we discuss each week. And of course, you can email us at BurnItAllDownPod at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line. And consider taking some time to check out our GoFundMe page and make a small donation to help keep the pod going and allow us to make technical improvements. We're really grateful for everyone who has contributed so far. That's it for this week. For Jessica Luther, Lindsay Gibbs, Brenda Elsie, and Shireen Ahmed, I'm Julie DeCaro, and we'll see you next week. Hey, hey,